But we're talking really about Christ at the center of our lives, Jesus at the center of everything we do. And today we're going to start in Colossians chapter 3. And this is really an important transition as we see in a lot of letters from Paul that he really sorts out two major themes in the majority of his letters. And, and the first is everything you need to know about Jesus. And we call that orthodoxy or rightful thinking about Christ. And we, we went through a lot of really heavy topics, especially uh, last week. I understand that probably could have been three sermons, so I threw a lot at you. Uh, but really the bulk of it was that Jesus himself is our foundation. He's our fullness, that there's nothing greater than him. And he truly is our freedom. And so if you believe that about Jesus, how does it play out in your life? And that's what we see as the second part of Paul's letters, is what it means to live in Jesus. And so today we're really getting into very um, application-heavy topics. It's a lot of practical living type things. And so again, it's, it's full of application, it's full of concepts, and so we'll get right into it today. If you're open up to chapter 3, uh, we'll read the first 14 verses. So pray with me before we, we read today. So Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, Jesus coming, that we can just think differently about life. But today, we'll talk specifically how we can live differently. And there's so much beauty in the text today as we think about being raised in a new life with you and saying goodbye to the things of old. Uh, so God, I just pray that that would really settle in our hearts today for all of us personally, as we work this out in different ways. God, help us to live like you want us to live. So speak to us today, Holy Spirit. We trust in you to do that through your power. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, Colossians 3, verses 1 through 14. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to live or used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. 
forgive, the, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. We have a lot to unpack in the text this morning, but it's all central around this idea of being raised into new life with Jesus. And we've seen these themes throughout the book of Colossians of dying with Christ, being buried with him, and being raised into new life. And so if you're raised into new life, what does it look like? Well, that's the answers that we're answering, uh, the questions that we're answering this morning. And really it starts with the concept of a new beginning in Christ. And this is the beauty of the gospel and the foundation of the Christian life is that whoever you were before Jesus, whatever mistakes you've made and whatever you were working toward in life, it doesn't matter anymore. You get a fresh start. You become a new person with a new life. And so building on that idea, we see two commandments in the first two verses that since you've been raised with Christ, first, we need to set our hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And essentially what that's telling us is that we are to seek and value Jesus above everything else in this life. Now, it's translated here that we're to set our hearts on things above. But it's important to note that in the Greek, there is no word for heart. What it really means is what you seek, what you desire. Essentially, that when you're raised in Christ, you have a new value system in life. And this is something that Jesus spoke on frequently, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, that we are to seek first the kingdom of God and everything else in life will be added onto you. In other words, don't worry about the things of this world. And the word for seek in that verse is the same word we see here for hearts. What are you seeking? What are you valuing in life? When you have a new beginning in Christ, you're to seek and value Jesus above all other things. We are to set our hearts on things above, things of heaven that last forever. The things of eternity. And in the same way Jesus said, we should not store our treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves come in, they break in and steal, but rather store our treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and nobody can steal from you what you treasure. Because where your heart is, what you seek, that's also where your treasure is. That if we seek the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, we know that it is a, a place of highest honor. That the things we seek are more worthy of anything else in this world if we seek Jesus. And it's also the place of highest authority. That it reigns and rules over all other things. So set your hearts on things above. Seek and value Jesus above all other things. The second command in verse 2 is that we are to set our minds on things above. And this really means being mentally consumed. Think about the things that matter most in the context of eternity, not the things of this world. It's really a question of what are you consuming mentally? What are you feeding your brain? Because ultimately, that's what will consume you. And I know we are in a spot where information is available 
quickly and we can keep consuming that information over and over again in the news and the social media. And we fill our brains with things that just really don't matter in the context of eternity. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again. If you're consumed by things, if you're up at night thinking about things that do not matter for eternity, consider what you're putting in your brain. Shut off the news. Log off social media. Open up the scriptures. And when you do that, it shapes the way you see the world. It's what we call eternal perspective. What really matters forever? And those are the things you should be thinking about now in this new beginning with Christ. You know, change the way you see the things around you, the way you see people, the way you see challenges, the way you see opportunities. And we know especially when it comes to people, if you are heavenly minded, if you have the eternal perspective, that everyone around you, no matter who they are, how they've wronged you, how evil they seem, or how good they seem, really, everyone around you is going to spend somewhere in eternity, and there's only two possibilities, heaven or hell. There's nothing in between. It changes the way you see people, that you don't no longer see them as enemies, but an opportunity to love and to win them over to heaven. Be consumed by what matters most. Think always of eternity. Where is your heart? Where is your mind? What are you seeking? What are you thinking about? Set them both on Jesus in your new beginning in Christ. And we see in verses 3 and 4 that he really gives three good reasons to do this. That when we're made new in Jesus, he impacts our past, our present, and most importantly, our future. And verse 3 starts with three simple yet pretty profound words. For you died. For you died. And there's lots of meaning in this, but what it's telling you is not only did Jesus die for you, but when you put your faith in him, you died with him. And it's spelled out much more uh, profoundly in, in uh, Galatians 2, verse 20, that Paul, knowing who he was and everything he had done, came to faith in Jesus, and he said, I've been crucified in Christ... And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. A new beginning in Christ means you died to the things of your past. And now in the present, as we read, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. It's kind of a strange phrase that needs some unpacking, but I kind of look at it as two general meanings. And, and the first is that if your life is hidden with God, it means you're safe with God. And this is the concept we call eternal security, something that's really not found in any other religion or faith system around the world. But the idea of when you put your faith in Christ, that your eternity is secure. It's not really uh, dependent on what you can do or what you believe or who you know, what you have. It's, it's all about Jesus. And Jesus now becomes the most important thing of your life. You're safe. You're secure in him. And as Jesus said when he's talking about his sheep, meaning us, he says, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. 
No one can snatch them out of my hand. When you are made new in Jesus, you're kept safe. But it also means that if we're hidden, that it could be mysterious to the people of this world. And this is picking up on that same concept we've been talking about over the weeks of the mystery of faith, the mystery of Christ. And so our relationship with Jesus probably won't make much sense to people who don't have a relationship with Jesus. It's hidden from the people in this world, and what they see really are the fruit, is the fruit of that. Our love, our peace, our joy, our hope. Those are the things they see, but until they understand, or until they experience a relationship with Christ, they'll never truly understand. But then we look to our future, that when Christ, who is our life, appears, then we will also appear with him in glory. Well, that's a point where everyone will understand what we have if they're not in Jesus. And the return of Christ is evident. If you believe in Jesus, you know that he's coming back again, and you believe that. What's not clear is when that will happen. And we're told we cannot know the day or the hour but we know a lot of things that will happen. And one of them, as we read here, is that when, when Jesus returns, he appears in glory, we appear with him in glory. That he finishes essentially everything he started and that we're made completely new and glorified with him. Well, there is no more sin. Well, if we appear with Christ, everyone who has ever been alive will see Jesus return and they'll see us return with him. I think that's the point, that they'll know what we had. But we don't want to get to that point. We want them to know before Jesus returns, and that's our impetus and our desire to share everything we have with others, that they may join us on the right side of eternity. But these are the key reasons of why we need to have our minds and our hearts set on the things above, that when Jesus is at the center of our life, when we have a new beginning in him, we're new. And that means we must take off the old. Now, verses 5 through 11, we really see this concept fleshed out by the apostle that we should remove our old self, that there's a conscious effort to take off the things of old. There's no room for who you used to be. And as Jesus said that we can't have two masters in this life, you can't serve Jesus and the world because a, a servant with two masters will love one and hate the other. You can't serve both. And so if you transfer your service to Christ, you must put off the things of old, the worldly, and the sinful. And so the command, really, we see this in two different verses, is to rid ourselves of our old characteristics and our sinful practices in verses 5 and verse 9. And verse 5 tells us to put to death whatever belongs to our old earthly nature. And the words put to death sound kind of extreme uh, because they are. It's showing the extreme measures we should take to these things. We don't tame our sin or train it. We don't sporadically indulge in it, but we are to put it to death or essentially execute it from our lives. And I look at it a lot as you would uh, if you have a house with cockroaches in it. They're not desirable. You don't train them. You say, now, now, now. Don't be on the counter. You can have this part of the rug. 
You exterminate them and you remove them from your house in the same way we should put to death whatever belonged to our earthly nature. Now there's a, a verse 9, which really was the crux of the children's lesson today, that we're to take off our old self with his practices. And the language here is, is clearly illustrating taking off things like you would clothing, taking off the dirty old clothing at the end of the day. It means you lay it aside and you no longer take hold of it. Like that pile of dirty laundry, you don't pull from the laundry basket each day, you pull from the clean clothes drawer. This is something I can relate to pretty personally over the last few weeks. Now, first of all, I can tell that I'm getting older because I got really excited about a new washer and dryer that came, that finally was installed yesterday, something I never would have cared about 10 years ago. Uh, but we've been, for the better part of a month, without a dryer. And so it's made laundry very interesting, and uh, you have to get creative about how you dry clothes or creative of how you wear clothes. And so you learn how many times you really can wear a shirt until it's too many times. But, uh, but after a, a, a great ordeal, it was installed yesterday, and we were very happy with it. But it's that same concept, is that when, you're, when clothes are dirty, you take them off, you lay it aside. We see here some examples that are given. And this is very common of the literature style of the time, common of Paul, that you'd give lists of virtues or vices to really give an example. And that's the important part here, is this is not uh, an exhaustive list. It's not if I don't do those sins, I'm good. It's, it's giving you now a concept that these are the kinds of things the old life might look like. And in verse 5, he gives five of those vices. And the first three are really, uh, in, they're really in the sexual sin world. And it's, you know, one of those things that every sin is destructive eternally, but in earthly terms, there's probably not much more destructive than sexual sin. It's really a terrible thing in many ways. It, it breaks spirits and trust and relationships and marriage and families. It, it can interrupt your health. There's just a lot of terrible earthly consequences from sexual sin. And he talks about it in a threefold matter. And first is sexual immorality, is, is the acts, the actual physical acts of those sins. And what this really means is any sexual activity that happens outside of what was ordained by God, which is a marriage between a man and a woman. So it could be anything premarital, it could be anything extramarital, it could be a homosexual affair, whatever it is. Sexual immorality is any act that happens apart from the way God designed it. Impurity, then, is, is what happens before that. It's just what happens in your mind. And most people just don't go out and do things, they're often thinking about it. And that's that same concept of setting your mind on things above. It's really the unsanctified thought life around sex. And that's a very important question, again, is how is your thought life? What's happening in your mind? Where are your eyes going? You're supposed to remove the impure thoughts. And then before that, though, is what happens in your heart. And that's what lust is, is essentially a sexual sin of the heart. It's a passion or desire. It's not really so much a spur a moment of the moment thing. It's what's prolonged in your heart, what you allow to live inside of you. And this is really the, the true source of all sexual sin. 
And that's when Jesus addressed that. He addressed adultery specifically. He said, that's not what really matters. If you lust after another person, in your, uh, it's like committing adultery in your heart. Think about what happens in your heart first and what you desire. But then he opens it up to more broad evil desires. This is really any thought or desire that's in contrary to God's character and will. So this could be anything in life, and that's where it's important to know God and what he expects of you. And then he addresses greed, which is idolatry. This is another broad term, but essentially it's wanting something that is more than what you need or is rightfully yours. And this can be applied in many different ways, but we see that the principle here is that greed really is idolatry. It means you're worshiping something other than God, because what you truly desire essentially becomes what you worship in life. Put these things aside. These are things that live inside of you first before they can have any impact on the people around you. And then we see a, a continuation of that in verses 8 and 9. These are interpersonal sins, the ways that we might relate to one another. And these have great relational uh, relational implications. Anger, in verse 8, is a chronic attitude. This is the way, a characteristic that you carry yourself with. You're just known as short and temperamental. Rage is more of an acute outburst of that. Now guys, when you throw that hammer across the garage when you're working on the car, that would be rage. Or the, that fist-sized hole in the wall, that would be rage. It's those moments that you're almost uncontrollable where the anger boils up into this moment. Malice is really about your intentions. What do you wish for other people? If you wish for someone to be harmed or for them to die, that's malice, and there's no room for that in the Christian life. And slander, then, is really the words you use. And this is attacking someone's reputation with your words. Words matter. And then we read after that filthy language, which is any dirty or abusive language. It's not always grotesque or sexual, but any language that's not helpful. And that's why we read in the book of Ephesians that we should not let any unwholesome talk come out of our mouths, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it may benefit all those who listen. Words matter greatly. And we're told this by Jesus, that we are to give an account for every empty word or word that's void of value when we see him. Be careful about what words you use because they do affect others greatly. And that brings us to the last point, which is lying. And this is the ultimate violation of trust. Really, all sin is built on a lie. Relationships are built on trust. And the highest assault to any relationship is lying. Communities, especially spiritual communities, cannot exist without consistent truth of its members. Be careful not to lie. So Paul gets really specific here and, and names all these things. And again, you can't look at these 11 things and say, whew, I'm pretty clear of those things. It's the concept that who you were should not be who you are. Die to those things and remove them. Now, here's three key reasons why. And this is sprinkled 
again throughout it, but in verse 6, we read that because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. So we have to remember, God has a righteous anger against sin. What that means is it's not unfair, that if you're in the wrong, he has the right to be very upset about that sin. And God does not take sin lightly. The way of the world is to justify sin, to accept it, to be proud of it. But as Christians, we must hate it as much as God does. God has a righteous anger against your sin. Really, in verse 7, if you know Christ, you know better. Okay, and there's, there's really a point. Uh, he says, you used to walk in these ways. Used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. Verse 7. You say goodbye to those things when you said hello to Christ. And that's really what repentance is, 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 is admitting that you've done wrong, asking forgiveness, and then really committing yourself to a lifestyle that doesn't embrace those things anymore. And repentance is an ongoing process. We're not made perfect in one moment, but we continue to reject that sin of our life. There's three possibilities with sin as a Christian when you commit them. First is to confess it. Uh, the second is to conceal it. I think that's what most Christians do. And, and really a lot of people in the world know that what they're doing is wrong, so they hide it. And the third is to commit it pridefully. And that's the worst thing you can do as a Christian is embrace what you know is wrong. If you know Christ, you know better. And the last is really the positive aspect of this. We don't want to dwell too much on the negative here. God has much better plans for you. Verses 9 and 10. That we've taken off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here, then, there is no Gentile, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, uh, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. And so we understand that, again, there's this list of these people that were kind of the most repulsive of the time, the barbarians, the Scythians, the Gentiles, the uncircumcised. But what we read is that doesn't matter. God has a better plan for you that now your life is centered on Jesus, that Christ is all, and Christ is in all. Who we are really depends on who Jesus is to us. God has a much better plan than where you were. So remove the old self and now replace it with the Christ-centered qualities. This is verses 12 through 14, the real positive part of the sermon, what I hope we really focus on and walk away with today, which is the, the virtues of Christ that we are to clothe ourselves with day after day. In a sense, this is kind of like the Christian dress code. These are the things that should be uh, imperative in your outward qualities. And much like the uh, sinful vices, he gives lists of these Christian virtues. In the first five are individual virtues. These are things that we are responsible for ourselves. Compassion is first on the list, and this contrasts what we saw in malice, where you wish harm on someone, now you wish only for good. And compassion is a funny word. Uh, when you look at it in, in the Greek, it means bowels of sympathy. And the reason why it's, it's, it says that is because the ancients believed that compassion was emotion that lived in your stomach. And why they believe that is because when you really feel for someone and when you desire only the good for them, it's, it's like you ache for them. 
And I'm sure you've all experienced that before. But it's this concept that caring comes from a deep part of yourself. You always see people as people, and you wish only the best for them. Kindness, then, is that response to compassion. It's, it's compassion in action. It's wishing uh, only the best for people and then moving into action with that. And we see that in the parable of the Good Samaritan, where there are people, who, you know, good people of the land, who saw a man in need and just basically said, oh, it's too bad. I, I hope he feels better. You know, and they kept moving. But it's the Samaritan, the lowly Samaritan, who stopped to help and put his compassion into action with kindness. That's where to clothe ourselves in. And humility is that concept of not thinking too highly of yourself, knowing that we are all people before God. So it's this healthy understanding of who you are and who God is. And that humility really brings us to a place or to a true perception of yourself, not thinking too highly or too lowly of who you are. And the gentleness is really just a submissive to God, using the power you have for God to love him and to love others. Patience is one of those things we have a really hard time learning in our culture. Everything comes quickly. Uh, I had to order some parts from Amazon for the new washer and dryer. You know what? I had to wait three days. <laughs> I don't know what I was going to do with that. But we live in this instant gratification where everything comes quickly. But patience here is really speaking about our patience with others. If you have a humble mind and you know that you're not any better than anyone else, the only value in us really is Jesus, then you can be patient with them as they're sorting through the same things. People will hurt you. People will offend you. But patience is the ability to understand that people are people. All people are loved by God. And we continue, continue even in the midst of betrayal, of ridicule, Jesus, who experienced those things, even torture and death, stayed patient with the people and continued to love those even who were harming and killing him. So those are the personal, individual things we need to always put on. But now it plays out in more of a mutual response. And this is where we see with one another how this, this happens. That in verse 13, that we are to bear with each other and forgive one another these are these one another type statements. You do this to me, I'll do this for you. And the first is forbearance. And it's really the, to, to continually bear with one another. It's building out that idea of patience. I'm patient with you. You're patient with me. We are all a work in progress. We're all at different levels of maturity. We all have different pasts with pain and confusion. And the question we always ask when someone is difficult is, what is wrong with you? Okay, that's not forbearance. The question when it comes to forbearance is, what happened to you? And how can I be a part of your healing? That's the attitude we are to carry for one another. And I remember in a youth group, uh, there's a really challenging student. He was in the same grade as me. And I don't know him. He was kind of, you know, he went to two schools over, but went to the same youth group. And I always had a really hard time with him. But I noticed how the youth pastor really was patient with him, really was, was, uh, was putting up with some of these bad qualities and investing in him. And I came to find out years later that this student had a terrible home life, something I would never wish 
on anyone. But at that point, I was ready to give up on him and wish not the best for him. But the youth pastor invested in him, and that guy today is a pastor. And he's using all of that hurt and that hardship from his life to minister to people in a really specific way, ways that I couldn't, ways that many of us couldn't. And that's the value of forbearance, is putting up with even the hardest things of one another. And forgiveness is one of those words, uh, again, that's losing its value in our culture today. And it's not bad to seek justice, okay? But we live in a world that seeks justice apart from forgiveness many times. And forgiveness almost seems offensive to many. But forgiveness is a key part of the Christian life. If you don't understand forgiveness, it means you may not understand how God forgave you. And the word forgiveness, for forgiveness here is, is pretty special. It's not the normal word, but this is one that goes above and beyond to mean that we graciously, freely, and readily forgive. It's the same word that was used earlier in Colossians when it was said that God forgave us all our sins, that he did it graciously, freely, and readily. So there's no complaint now that is conditional or there's no grievance against one another. We say, I could never forgive that, but we're to readily and freely forgive one another. But the last virtue that we'll see here that we're wrapping up this section with is, is the chief virtue of Christianity, which is love. Verse 14 that over all these virtues were to put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. Now, love is really the thing. This is speaking about love for God and love for others. Sacrificial love for God and for others. Love is the only thing that really separates a Christian from a, quote, good person. It's fueled by the love of God and the love of others that all of these virtues really have meaning. And it binds them together in perfect unity. It's what truly makes you Christ-like rather than just fulfilling some duty. As we read in 1 Peter, that above all, we are to love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. In the same way, love covers all the good virtues and makes them more meaningful. Jesus, in some of his uh, most important words, is a new command that he gives to each and every one of us, that we are to love each other as he loves us. As we wrap up today, there's really three key things I hope you can take with you. And the first is this. Who you were does not determine who you will be in Christ. Don't let your past determine your future. God wants to give you a new beginning in Jesus, and you're never too far gone. Be careful, too, that you don't go back to the things you left behind. It's, it's all too easy to do, but really, don't play around with sin. Don't entertain it. Don't hide it. If it's a part of your life, do everything you can to get rid of it. Repentance, as I said, is not a one-time act. It's a continual effort. And even for the Christian, it's something we need to be mindful of every day. The Proverbs give us an example of what it's like for one that continues to go back to their sin. It's kind of gross, but 
A fool who returns to their folly is like a dog who returns to its vomit. Don't go back to those things. Don't entertain it. And most importantly, cover yourself daily with the virtues of Christ, but, but especially his love. We don't do these things to impress God or impress others, even impress ourselves. We do them out of sacrificial, unconditional love. And there's a big difference between those two. There's no conditions, there's no expectations we have when we put on these virtues, except to joyfully love God as a response for all he did. It becomes really part of who we are. Let's pray as we close today. So Lord, we thank you for just the, the wonderful news that we can be made new in you, that we can have a fresh start from wherever we are. But I do pray, God, for anyone that's been listening today or maybe is listening in the future that hasn't experienced a new start, a new life in you. God, I just pray that, that they would know, that they would confess their sin, know that what they did was wrong, that they'd repent of it and turn to you and trust in you, knowing that what you did on the cross, the sacrifice you made was sufficient to pay for all of that sin, to pull us out of the grave, that we may be raised with you and new life. And we consider you now Lord of all, that we set our minds on you, that we set our hearts on you, and value you above all else. So God, I pray for anyone who wants to come to that point, if, if they really believe that and they've prayed that, that they would reach out to another Christian and really start that relationship with one another now after they've started that relationship with you. But for all of us, God, no matter where we're at, we know this is in many ways a daily struggle. So give us strength, give us clarity, give us wisdom to walk in the new life that you give us, knowing it's only possible by your power. So we thank you, God, that you've pulled us out of the grave and raised us into new life with you. And we pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.